Hey everyone, I'm Dr. Kelly Starrett. And I'm Juliet Starrett. And you're listening to the Ready State Podcast. You got it! You better stop it! This episode of the Ready State Podcast is brought to you by Element. Look, let me be straight up. We're going into summer. It's like hot, sweaty, die in your garage gym hot. Plus all the athletes in summer programs get ready for fall. One of the things that's happening, everyone's sweating balls. No one is replacing electrolytes. They're like no one. Protein, that's good. But if you're not putting the salts back in, I guarantee you, you're missing out on hydration, on focus, the whole thing. Like you cannot take this seriously enough. It makes well, such a difference. And even if you are drinking a lot of water, you may not Especially. actually be absorbing all the water you're drinking. You may just be peeing it all out. Yeah, and we, that's we one of the reasons why you want to add some salts to your water. Yeah, the hyponatremia thing. I think we're seeing a lot of kids right now, a lot of young kids walk around like the gallon. And I'm not talking about a Borg, a blackout rage gallon. I'm just talking about a gallon of water. They're thinking, I, I got to drink this, but they are not thinking about replacing the salts and you are a bioelectrical system. The whole thing runs on a gradient that's driven by salt. Let me just say that again. If you are <laughs> sweating hard, make sure you're adding some salts back. And the best way to do that is to be entertained in your mouth. Let me introduce you to the power of Element. Right now, if you order through our link, you get a free sample pack with all of Element's flavors. Go to drinkelement.com slash TRS. Do it. On this episode of the Ready State Podcast, we are very excited to welcome Tom Morris. Tom is in his 16th year within the Indiana Strength and Conditioning Department of Indiana University, serving as the Senior Assistant Athletic Director for Athletic Performance for the Department of Intercollegiate Athletics. He is responsible for the development and implementation of sports-specific strength, conditioning, flexibility, speed, and agility programs for Indiana's 24 men's and women's NC2A Division I programs, including the eight-time national champion men's soccer program. This conversation is great. I had a chance to become friends with Tom a long time ago when I swung by Indiana to work with the, with the football team and the performance staff. And immediately I was like, this is a person, we're going to be friends forever. And I'm so thrilled to talk about him on this, con yeah, on this I had conversation the, with him. I had the exact same experience when I took Georgia on a college tour at IU. And we had the opportunity to also meet Tom and some of the other strength and conditioning staff there. And I came home and I was like, oh my God, this guy, Tom Morris is amazing. Now, spoiler alert, we're going to talk about some of the challenges for young collegiate athletes. I think if you have a school-age child, you're thinking, hey, my kid's probably a unicorn and is going to play D1 sports. We talk about that a little bit, but also we talk about Tom's incredible, incredible story. I, won't, I don't want to give it away here. I don't think we want to spoiler it, but understand that Tom is a total badass and uh, has become even more, more remarkable person dealing with this, uh, this thing that happened in his life. Yeah, I mean, he really is such an example of humility and resilience and the power of positive thinking. And, and the power we're of, so inspired of by him. sport as an organizing feature to overcome difficult obstacles. Agreed. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation with Tom. I know Kelly and I had a great time talking with him. Tom, welcome to the Ready State Podcast. You know, we are just really excited to talk to you today. And I'll let Kelly kick it off with how we even know you in the first place. Yeah, I'll tell right? you, let's start with where are you talking to us? I We know, but will you explain your, you know, your location to our listeners? Absolutely. So I'm at Indiana University and I'm in the varsity weight room. And that's all of this behind me. 25,000 square feet, 
millions of dollars worth of equipment. I mean, it is it is like a, a little gem just sitting in the middle of Indiana. And this is where we train primarily all of our athletes out of here. So 750 student athletes, 24 sports, all training out of this one facility under this one roof. And will you explain where that facility is specifically in relationship to like, say, a football field? Yes. So if you can see, it is right back. I've got windows behind me and the windows beyond that. We are on the ground level of the football stadium in the north end zone. So we we basically we have filled in that north end zone and uh, put ourselves on that ground level. And uh, yeah, you walk out those doors, you're right in the end zone. They're walking right out onto the field. Now, and I just want to say from, I think Kelly and I both have had the opportunity to be in that gym. And I was there with our daughter, Georgia, when we were doing a campus tour, you guys were kind enough to let us in. And what I loved about her reaction is she is, is a water polo player and she'd already decided she didn't want to go the like college athlete route, didn't want to play D1 water polo, wasn't pursuing that, but we were still lucky enough to get to see that gym. And the only time she's ever had a moment of regret about not wanting to pursue D1 athletics was when she was in that gym. I mean, she stood there and she's like, wait, so only the athletes get to work out (laughs) in here? And, you know, and then we went over to like the normal kid gym and she definitely was like, man, you know, this is the first time I'm sort of regretting not trying to pursue this athlete thing because that gym is beyond. You know, we have that effect. We had that happen so many times. We'll have you know, donors come in here with their kids and, you know, and maybe their students at on campus here. And the second they get in here, they're doing everything they can to figure out how they can become an athlete, volunteer, whatever it may be, just so they can get in here and lift. Because I'm telling you, this is one of the, I mean, I'm biased, obviously, but this is one of the nicest facilities in the entire country. It is uh, bananas. That whole university is in- incredible. And just for everyone's framework, I'm pretty sure that makes you a Hoosier. Is that correct? That is true. But do not ask me to define what <laughs> does, a Hoosier Does Gene is, Hackman I, just walk around campus all the time? <laughs> exactly right. On a case, you may catch him walk right behind me. You just never know. That's right. So <laughs> what is your role in the department? Because we have so many questions about collegiate athletics right now. But tell us about what your role is at the department. So mine's director of athletic performance. And what I do is I give oversight to all of our strength coaches. So athletic performance here is our strength conditioning coaches that are working hands-on with all of our student athletes. And so for me, I work with our men's soccer team. I still have a, a team that I get to get my, my hands dirty and get out on the floor with them. And I spend a, a lot of time doing that. But the majority of my time is just making sure that we're, we're using the creative process to continually keep building up our brand and building up our brand as far as how we're training our student athletes, how we're promoting them to being put in the most technological, the newest ways of training. And we're doing that in a way of collaboration with 15 strength coaches. And that's the unique part about this facility is, is that we're all under one roof, 15 strength coaches. If you go to a lot of different universities, there's six, seven different weight rooms all over the place and everybody is spread out. And that has its pluses. But the idea of being able to all be under one roof with 15 people that when I get up, I could go down to somebody else's office and just ask them something in the world of strength conditioning and be able to sit there and collaborate that close. I mean, that's the unique part of what we're doing. But to go back to your original question, that's what it's all about is being able to keep everybody talking, keep everybody collaborating and building the best programs. 
You know, that reminds me of what Kelly's talked a lot about with our early gym when we were still running San Francisco CrossFit. You know, Kelly had his physical therapy table like six feet away from the coaching floor. And, you know, then we had all these amazing coaches who were out there day in, day out working with athletes. And so, you know, they could listen to what Kelly was doing with his clients and athletes and he could listen to them. And there was like so much growth and learning and collaboration. I mean, I think that happened in our gym throughout. But um, man, in those early days, that closeness and collaboration is so important. And I'd never really thought about it in the college context, right? Because, you know, like where I went to college at Cal, we did have like a bunch of, you know, there were like 10 different weight rooms. And we certainly weren't always connected with the other athletes. So I think it probably is also advantageous for the athletes to be able to witness other athletes training and see what other sports are doing, right, from a strength and conditioning standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the biggest things we always say is we're prideful that we're very, we're good coaches. You know, we we try to be the best coaches that we possibly can. But we are nothing compared to what those peers are. So when the baseball team is lined up, getting ready to hit a big squat, and that football team looks over at that baseball team and says, no way in hell am I allowing those, you know, those baseball guys to go and do something that I, I know I could do. All of a sudden, the promotion of just that intensity, let's, let's go get after it. I mean, it's incredible. And it's across the board as far as just motivating and pushing our athletes. We are allowed to be in this setting. 700 athletes are coming in and out of here. And all this is, is we give them the blueprint and they give the intensity and they bring all the energy. And all of a sudden, I mean, the athlete that never thought they could do this, but because this athlete is doing it, all of a sudden they're doing it. And it just allows this continual growth. So before we have like a thousand questions about strength and conditioning in college athletics, but we cannot talk to you on this podcast without hearing your unique story. You had a really bad crash and accident. And, you know, I just would love it if you could share that with our yeah, listeners. Because just because it brings in such visions of inclusivity. You just think differently about the world. I'd love yeah, to, and, we'd and love I to hear it. about just how you became an athletic director and your unique position that you occupy in this sort of world. Yeah. So let me give you a little context. Uh, I was always an athlete. So grew up as a football player, uh, football player. When it was all said and done, I decided to, I needed competition. You know, I was, I was already working as a strength conditioning coach because the weight room and being an athlete put me there. And I loved it. I mean, just love what that weight room could do for a human as far as helping them grow and continue to get better. But there was this feeling that I was still missing, and that was that competition. I love the idea of training hard and working, and I needed to compete. So I got back into biking. You know, some a childhood deal. You know, I used to race bikes when I was 10, 11 years old. And then when football's done, I decided I'm going back into this. So I went from the 230-pound football player dropping down to 180 pounds and just racing bikes all over. And so this became quite an addiction. You know, it was almost like the, a bit by this endurance bug, but I got addicted to that pain and suffering of what endurance brought. And I spent a lot of time with that in that world, so much so that it actually, you know, I, I would say gave me an identity. I, I was racing Cat 1 and mountain biking at that point and, and even getting pretty high up in, in road biking. And uh, on May 17th of 2012, I had a, uh, a couple of days after that, it was going to be a huge mountain bike race, huge national mountain bike race. So I go out that morning on a Wednesday morning and I'm just doing this training ride, kind of fine tuning myself, you know, like almost like a walkthrough, just make sure the gear is right. The body's feeling good. And, uh, I'm on the fourth lap, the final lap of this ride. And I go around this sharp 90 degree turn 
And all of a sudden, I plow into this rock. I nail it with the front tire. And I'm finding myself flying through the air, kind of this head over heel action. And it was crazy because it was almost like a scene from like Matrix where I'm going head over heels and I could see the vivid nature of the ground. I could see all the grains of, of dirt and I could see myself getting closer and closer, leaves falling to my left and right. And there was just nothing I could do. So I just grabbed the hold of the, the handlebars as tight as I could and all of a sudden, wham, nailed it with the front, nailed the ground with the front part of my head. And so it jars my head back and then kind of straight down that it drove my eyes through that I could see kind of like my knees, then the bike was in it, and then the entire sky is on top of it. And I always refer to that, that impact, it, it completely ignited me. Like my whole body felt like it caught on fire, like hands felt like lightning bolts blazed out of them. And so I somersault all the way around, I land on the ground and kind of just the whole thud of hitting the ground, I, I just laid there motionless, not knowing what just happened. You know, so I'm laying there, eyes closed, scared to death to open them, finally open my eyes, and and I'm staring back up at that same sky again and uh, trying to get off the ground, trying to push, trying to move, trying to do everything I can. And and it was the feeling of almost like your suction cup to the ground. You you just can't get off. You cannot budge no matter what happens. Start patting myself, just trying to figure out some assembly of like what just happened. How did what is going on right now? And uh, the weirdest sensation of touching my chest. When my hands got to my chest, it was like they felt my chest. My hands did, but my chest it wasn't feeling my hands. It was like I was almost touching something that wasn't there. It was just this crazy idea of almost like if I'd reach out and touch the desk, I could feel it, but obviously nothing's coming back. And so I go through this whole series of trying to figure out how I'm going to get out of this thing, trying to get up off the ground. I'm laying there staring at the sky. I realize I have my phone on me, but I try to reach in my pocket to grab my phone. And because um, I have one of those cycling jerseys on, so it's in my kind of back right pocket. I reach in there. And then at that point, I realize it's not even just your legs that aren't working. You're not only just stuck, my hands aren't working either. They could pinch, they could feel the phone, but they weren't strong enough to actually pull the phone out of my back pocket. And so at that point, I'm in this world of, oh shit, like I'm stuck to the ground on some secluded trail in Indiana, completely by myself with any kind of way of getting out of it, completely gone. You're just stuck to the ground. And so I laid there for three and a half hours on the ground. Oh, oh my, my God. God. Yeah, three and a half hours of just not kind of knowing and all the millions of thoughts going through your head and, and three hour mark into this. My body's in such an intense burn. Just everything's on fire. My breath is getting labored. And I'm just kind of in the place of, is this the last place I'm going to be? Like, will I ever see my, my wife again? Am I ever going home? But luckily at that mark, uh, three and a half hours into it, these two riders came by and then um, called for help and uh, kind of the journey began. That's bananas. Yeah. And so tell us um, in sort of medical terms, like what actually like that was, by the way, such an amazing description. Like, and it's crazy to me that you were able to remember and see the all that detail, that, right? Yeah. Right. And um, but, you know, tell us then from like a medical standpoint, like what actually happened to you after the fact and what is your life like now? 
Yeah. So I get to the hospital and, and they, I go in and at this point, I'm, I know something's obviously wrong, but I didn't know the severity of it until I went in and I got the initial scan. And, and when I came out of the, the, the scan, the doctor who actually ended up being a, a biker, I knew her from doing some different rides. And she looked at me and she said, Tom, you have, you broke your neck. You have a C6, C7 vertebrae break. And when she told me that, she started crying and she started crying. And when she did that, I just knew like, this is a big deal. This is not going to be real good. But the C6, C7 break, hours later, I go into surgery. They fix the spinal column. Spinal cord is already damaged at that point. So the initial diagnosis was uh, the doctor came in and said, basically, you are a quadriplegic. You will have no function of your hands. You will have no function of your body. You're going to need it's not even that you can't walk. You're going to need a caregiver for the rest of your Holy life. Holy shit. How do you even process that? Yeah, right? Like, I mean, it's like, yeah. And literally, he and, he, and, and that story is so crazy because I remember that point where he came in. And uh, it's actually a quick story I'll have to tell you because they, I'm in there with the speech therapist who came in to just make sure I could swallow because of the trach. They do that little swallow test. And so she says she has three different pieces of, of food, first water, then jello, then a cracker. And she said, you just need to swallow them to make sure your throat is fine. So she feeds me a little water. It goes down. It actually felt pretty good. Then she feeds me this cherry jello. And I'm telling you, the second the cherry jello and the sugar hit my mouth, it felt like life coming back in me. But I swallow it down and I'm like, ah, nailed that. And so the third one, though, is this is this cracker and she's holding it in her hand. And so what I didn't know what was happening at that point was right outside my door, the doctor, the, the surgeons, are, he's talking to my wife and he's telling her the diagnosis. And she says, or he said to her, Tom's a quadriplegic. He'll, he'll never walk again. He's going to need, he's going to need a caregiver. He, this is going to change his life and your life forever. And her only concern was, how are we going to, how are we going to tell him this? Like, how are we going to tell Tom what just happened? And so in the meantime, I'm in the room and all I'm focused on is cracker. Like this cracker is staring at me. And I'm just, crush. I crushed the jello. Bring it on. Bring it on. I was confident at this point, nervous but ready. And so the, the speech therapist is holding this cracker about two or three feet away. And so she's starting to bring it close to my mouth. And right at that point, I see the, the door. It flings open and the doctor comes barging in. And uh, without even any kind of hello, nothing, he just yells out. He, he, uh, he's a quadriplegic. He, you know, he can't feed himself. You got to feed him. You got to put it in his mouth. And I remember sitting there just thinking like, oh, fuck, like, what? Like, what? Like, what? And my only thought at that point was, is like, I wonder if he's telling the, like, is he, is this real? Yeah. You're like, am I being punked right now? I'm Tom Morris, super jock. I, yeah, right. Like, I'm like, you're telling me I can't like pick up this cracker. Like it's just, and I remember I reached out with like everything I had and I grabbed the hold of the cracker. And when I pinched it, it felt like I was lifting a thousand pounds, like to squeeze and just be able to hold on to it. I tight as hard as I can and still couldn't crack that cracker. And I pulled it in my mouth and start chewing it, you know, kind of just chewing it, turned it into a little ball of crackery mush and swallowed it down. And I remember just going like, now it is, dude. You know, you're like, take that, take that, take Suck that, it. doctor. Suck it, doctor. What I have to just quickly interject for anyone who's not watching and is just listening to this: this story is extra amazing because the entire time you're telling it, you're doing all this like 
very like animated gesturing with your entire upper body. So, I mean, that makes it even better <laughs> because you're like, you know, just obviously using your entire upper body. So when I met you, I think it was 2016 or 2017, I had come to see Coach Keith, who was a former head strength conditioning coach for football. I was invited there. Yep. I mean, I didn't realize how recent, relatively recent, within like five years of your injury it was. And we talked about adaptive athletics. I, you were an athletic director at the time. I want to know, you have a blueprint for injury. Had you ever been injured in before in your life? Had you ever had a knee surgery, a soldier, where you lost this identity of physicality? Had you ever gone through something like that before? Never. Basic broken fingers, you know, go to catch a football, have a finger get dislocated, but nothing that a little tape and a little PT didn't help, you know, so... And I know, I know it, it's a big jump to say, hey, I've torn my ACL. I may lose my scholarship and my identity to, hey, I have a spinal cord injury that changes everything. But the core principle there is the same, that we lose, especially, I mean, Juliet and I are just like you. I think one of the reasons we, you know, we always talk, all three of us talk about mountain biking together. But one of the things is that we just so clearly identify our recreation, our, the things we like to do, train. And if that was taken away, it's a little bit shocking. Can you talk about that experience or was it just, hey, I already have a model for this. I've been around injured athletes making rehab gains. I know what the work looks like. Did you have a framework or did you just say, oh my God, my life is over or I just have to get back to work? Yeah, it's a hundred percent just what can we do? Like, how can we, how can I move on? You know, I've seen athletes again, never, I've never been injured before, but I've seen a athletes, we've helped rehab ACLs and the ones that go on to have the best outcomes, they just put the work in, they put it in, they live in the moment, they live in the present moment and they try to control the controllables. And, and I think that's such a foundational principle that we could all live by is control the controllables. And in our control, there's not that many things besides effort, besides the way we're going to approach whatever's in front of us. And that's all I had was the idea of, I didn't know what any given day was going to bring. I didn't know what the outcomes were going to be. I just knew I had energy and I could put my focus into that moment. And that's how I decided to kind of tackle this thing. I, I remember a, a whole bunch of people in the beginning saying, you know, there's Paralympics and there's all these different things. In the meantime, I'm sitting there with this huge neck brace, barely able to breathe and move. And they're talking about <laughs> Paralympics. So I was like, yeah, let's not put the cart before the horse. Let's just hold on a second. And so for me, that's what I did as I, I tried to listen to the PTs. I had incredible PTs that I was so fortunate to work with. And they not only helped me with some of the physical parts, but they they painted the picture of what a spinal cord injury is because I think so often, including myself before this injury, I just thought, oh, spinal cord injury, every, anybody that's in a wheelchair just can't walk. Like that sucks, but it was like universal. Didn't matter what was going on. And then you realize with a spinal cord injury, let alone a uh, cervical spinal cord injury, man, walking is the least of your worries. I mean, everything is gone. Everything is kind of wiped out. And so I put the energy into whatever they told me each day. Started off with trying to pinch a finger. Started off with trying to comb hair. Like it was just the littlest things building into hopefully the bigger picture. One of the things that I admire so much about you from afar, you know, having met you, of course, but also sort of watching you on Instagram. And I know you go around and do speaking engagements and stuff. But I mean, and you didn't mention this, but obviously a huge part of how amazing you are and how effective your recovery was is your mindset. 
And, you know, I'm sure people would love to figure out how they could like tap into your mind and make a drug out of whatever it is that you have did going you, for you. Did you have formal mindset training? <laughs> yeah, because... Did you see our high-performance psychologist? I mean, really, like, I'm wondering, did you have a framework for this or did your training as an athlete prepare you for, I think I understand how to cope with this? Yeah, because, I mean, just quick, like, context. I mean, you are like a stoked, positive human out there in the world who is like functioning at a very high level in all things you're doing, including athletics, which we can get to. But how did you approach that from a mindset standpoint? Well, I appreciate the kind words on there. I definitely am humbled by it. Uh, I never had a, a high performance psychologist, nothing. I think sport creates so many positive parts of life. And, and I think for me is there's one story that when I started off Little League, I hate to always hit with stories, but I think they speak to where maybe it started. And so when I was nine years old, I'm Little League All-Stars, Beaver Banks, Little League All-Stars. And <laughs> I said, it was the greatest thing because it was the start of my MLB career. Like this is where I was headed. And so you're not wrong. I totally get it. You know what I mean? You, we all had these, like we're all, even your listeners, you know, that time when I you played were, for FC Byron. It's totally fine. Yep. See, exactly right. And so I get out there and I'm trying out for Little League. Me and three of my closest friends, you go through the, the standard Little League tryouts, run, jump, do, hit the ball. We get brought back into the locker or into the, the dugout. The coach says, hey, I got the list of the team. If you're on the list, you come out center field. If you're not on the list, try again next year. He puts the little note up on the uh, the wall. We go out there and just ripping through that, trying to find your name. And, and I still remember the feeling of going through, ah, oh, I don't see it. We go through again. And going through, and I don't see it, and I hear, and at this time, all my friends are like, "Yeah," and they're making it, and I go through that list about five or six times, and I realize, "Hey, uh, I'm not on the list. Like, I didn't make it." And even kind of not worse, but kind of worse, all my friends did, and so I remember just, you know, dropping my head, and I'm walking out to my dad. He's in, he's in, he's at the parking lot by his truck. And I didn't even make it like five feet from, and I unload. I mean, it, it's the coach's kids. This is unfair. Everybody, I had every excuse in the book, like just how unfair it is besides anything that was about me. I still remember my dad saying, he's like, yeah, maybe, right? Like, that's a possible. You, I'm not saying you're wrong, but he's like, what is it going to change? Like, if you're this mad and you're this upset, what is it going to change? And he's like, in life, just life sometimes isn't fair. So control the things you can become so good that the coach cannot not keep you on this team. And I remember I went home that day and I, we played catch. And then the full year after that, I mean, just literally I threw the ball with every neighborhood person. I threw the ball to the dog. I mean, it was, I literally played baseball all the time. And I went back the next year and uh, I was able to make that roster. And ever since then it taught me to, Life isn't always fair, and life is going to throw you a curveball. But control the controllables. If you whatever you still have, do it to the best of your capability. And I think that that foundational principle at nine years old was something that was replayed over and over because I have failed so many times in life. I have failed so many, so many times. But every time I failed, I just tried to learn something from it and take it as control the controllables. Figure out how and what the effort is that you can put in there to be able to keep moving on. And I think when this accident happened, the same deal was like, okay, I can't walk or pinch a finger. What can I do? And just that was I, that idea allowed me to keep moving forward. And I do think it is, it's a really important part because boy, boy, life is still not easier. Life has still gotten a lot harder, but 
I spend my time where my energy could actually make the positive change. And I'm very, very fortunate to be able to do that. So you're a coach. And I think as a coach, especially as a strength coach, it's all about regression and progression. Athletes change during the season. They get injured. They get banged up. You're always working to find out what we can do. I mean, I don't think people understand that that part of strength conditioning is really miraculous. That no matter what, we're coming in. We're going to work today, no matter what. And that may be really different than what the other kids are doing, but we're still working. What I think is I'd love to explore is how did this impact your coaching? You're already been a D1 athlete. You know, you love to train. You're already a strength and conditioning coach. Suddenly, this thing happens. You're now a hyper user, right? You're just like, you're training harder and, and more sort of in touch with all the systems than any of your other, you know, 18-year-old mutants. But does this change how you're interacting as a coach? Yeah, it does. It does. This was, uh, you know, it's interesting being in a profession where, you know, we all out here, we, we're teaching movement. I mean, our whole field is based off of uh, human movement. And then the thing that's kind of taken away because of this accident is human movement. So I sat there trying to figure out just the basic logistics of how do I teach a clean again? Like, what am I going to do to fundamentally get through this? Because before that was it, I would just, I demonstrated everything. If it was a clean, I would demonstrate it. And then I could kind of fill in the gaps with certain coaching cues. And um, what I realized very early was, okay, that's not going to work, obviously. But what is the technology? What is the team that's around me as far as, I mean, incredible coaches that I'm so fortunate to work with? How do I utilize them and their movement to be able to get out here and, and really demonstrate to get the point across? And that was a major, major, uh, major point on for me to move forward. I had to utilize the team. I had to utilize technology. I had to become a lot better at talking than I could of uh, filling in the gaps. I now try and fill in the gaps with these hand gestures <laughs> that are thrown all over the place. And I try to use the words as best as I can. That's how, fortunately, it was able to log logistically get together. But I think my approach to training itself, and especially people that are dealing with injuries, but even the, the youngsters, the freshmen, I just have a lot more empathy to where they're at right now. I think that's one of the fundamental parts that has really uh, been a, a really great thing that this injury has done for me is when you're an athlete and you've been doing it for so long, you're 25 and 26 years old and you've gone through the maturation process, you sometimes forget about the 16, 17 and 18 year olds and how hard that is when you come into the intensity of college athletics. And so at the ripe old age of 32, I got to be humbled again and kind of almost zeroed out and have to build up from the ground up. And it taught me a deep empathy. It taught me to really sit with these athletes that are struggling and they're not struggling because they just, they're weak and they're mentally shot. They're just, they haven't been exposed to that. So I learned a lot as far as that approach of humanizing the whole process and really finding out who they are and building that bond up. And that's incredible because that bond, even though I felt good about it before, now, I mean, the last 11 years has created such a tight-knit knit feeling with a lot of our soccer players and things that I don't know if I would have felt before. Hey, Ready State listeners, if you like what you're hearing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. This episode of the Ready State podcast is brought to you by Momentus. And what we wanted to talk about today is what I'll call the Starrett travel trifecta. And that's the three things that we always take with us when we travel. We just got back from a trip to Colorado 
And we brought all of these things with us. Yeah, we were at Outside Magazine and a trade show. And we brought sort of single serving protein because it seems sometimes that I'm under protein when I travel. You don't say. Weird. <laughs> we bring our sleep pack because we know we're going to be getting crappy sleep yeah, in a strange weird, hotel. Yeah. It's super hot, all those things. That really makes a difference yep. from sleep support. And then something that has made a difference in my life as I have gotten older, and it's called collagen. I'm never going to eat enough bone broth or chicken skin. I'm just not going to do it. It's but gross. we bring collagen shots, which is a super easy, transportable way to make sure we get a collagen shot. Yeah. Uh, you know, a dose of collagen every day when we travel. Before we go for a walk, before we train in the hotel gym. It, really easy. And it allows me to be consistent. I think that's what I really like about these things. I'm able to carry some consistency through some of the chaos that is traveling. And I think that's really, you know, I'm not a big planner of like these things. Like, I'm not as <laughs> Hey, shut up. And uh, I was trying to be vulnerable at that and you just crushed me. And uh, what I'll tell you, though, is that this makes it a lot easier for me to do the right thing without having to sort of plan ahead and do all that. I just throw them all into a bag and good to go. Yeah. And summer's upon us. I know a lot of you are going to be taking trips and are already taking trips this summer. So if you want to sort of keep your habits consistent, those are the three things that start at Trifecta. You can check them all out at livemomentous.com slash TRS. And you can use TRS, use the code TRS for 20% off your first purchase. Do it. We have a lot more questions, especially about those young athletes coming into your program, because this is something that Kelly and I are really interested in. But before we get to that, tell us a little bit about what your own individual physical practice is now. And again, I do have some idea because I follow you and I know what you're doing. And also, isn't it interesting that the first thing we all, the three of us talk about on this podcast in the pre-roll is like, when are we going to get together to mountain bike? And you told the story, which I'm hoping you can tell again about your recent escapades on a mountain bike. But yeah, if you could just tell the listener about like what it is you're, you are doing, what you're able to do, and maybe a little insight into how it is that you actually got the courage to get back on a bike of all things. I mean, that's one of the things that I'm so amazed by you, right? Like I know there's a thousand ways you could choose to use your body and you still love biking. So tell us a little bit about hucking. Yeah. And not just biking, hucking. So I, 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 I work were, on my baby tabletops, but yeah, I'm there like, were like, bro, I'm old. There were like six questions in there, but I'm sure you can take it and run with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll start with what the day-to-day -day looks like as far as shoulders. And I spend a ton, obviously these little suckers, like they say, these aren't like hips, but we're, I'm putting them through the same rigors of, of what the hips are. I got to be honest in 11 years, they have some major wear and tear on them already. So day to day is I wake up in the morning very early and my practice starts with literally going through an entire stretching routine, getting out of bed, getting onto my stomach, trying to get my, my hips to flatten out because at night I get real tight and I my knees just want to be in my chest all the time. So the whole morning is spent trying to get those legs to kind of lay flat and get the hips to kind of unwind. From there, I go through a ton of just flexibility mobility for the shoulders, trying to keep that in there because everything just keeps wanting around and get tight on me. So I spend a ton of time with just the mobility aspect. And then seven days a week, it's making sure I'm working on just functional range of motion, making sure I still have strength all the way around. But they got to be honest with you. They've gotten a little achy and I went, I decided I'm going to go and find out what they look like from an MRI. That's brave. And I almost wish I didn't because they revealed... Stop right there. They reveal that you have beautiful balls of light that are a little bit dimmer than when you were 18. That's all. I try to tell people all this all the time. I'm like, unless you really need to see a picture of your body, 
I don't want to see what a battle war horse looks like on the inside because it doesn't reflect your <laughs> your experience or your function, but it definitely can stick in your head. Why do we not speak more often? Because I wish I would have talked to you before because I'm sitting there going, should I do it? Should I not do it? And I did it. And all of a sudden the doc picks up and he's like, well, it's not horrible, but it's not great. And I'm like, dang it. So I'm not even going to give you the whole outcome of that, but it's just, I got to emphasize those shoulders a lot. And so I'm just very, very proactive with that. And let me, I got to stop and just say that that's actually, I know it sounds crazy because you're an adaptive athlete and you're trained so hard and you do all use your shoulders, but it's not any different than an athlete who throws a ball and has to do one thing over and over again. We really see that we have these specialists who do specific things. We have to just think, how do we protect this essential mechanism? And once again, sport gives you this platform, right? Gives you this tool, gives you a team, it gives you a place to explore. The weight room is so important. So important. The weight room is just, I mean, that's a rabbit hole I could go down in, in so many different areas. I won't for right now, but for as far as the actual strength, the mental strength, the mental everything, the weight room. And I'll tell you what, I've been very, very fortunate to find this as a profession and be in this uh, position and to be going through life and still have this in the background because it's helped out tremendously. Let me ask you. Wait, I, I still want to hear about his. his oh, okay, biking. sorry. Go ahead. Karen. I can't. I can't move on until you tell us about your biking escapades as a adaptive athlete. Yeah, it's funny when you talk about. So the earliest days, it was only about a month and a half after the accident. And they're like, "Hey, there's this thing called hand cycling," and so they they took me down to the gym, and that was one of those um, the armor, you know, standard and. And I remember trying to crank that darn thing and literally to try and keep it moving for more than two minutes was this incredible, Amazing. daunting task. Like it was just like, how the heck do people do hundreds of miles on these things? And so I started with it in the gym and then gradually it built up. But then I got on the first adaptive bike outside. And when you're in a wheelchair, you find that the world gets you know, to go around the block. The first chore for me was to go around the rehab center. It couldn't have been more than. 800 yards, it felt like running a marathon. I mean, it was just crazy how hard it was to go far. And then I got into that bike and with the gears, it allowed me to go around multiple times, no problem at all. So it wasn't oh. even the fact it was like back biking, it was straight up freedom. Like it was- Yeah, just access. Access, yes. It was just like, oh my God, this is, this is how I felt like being able to have these tools, this mechanical advantage, it allowed me to see the world more. So I wouldn't say that I looked at, at biking as, I'm um, back biking, I, I looked at it as freedom and I could see what I was used to being able to see before. And so I started that with just road biking, but trying to figure out the mountain part. You know, I love mountain biking. I love, I mean, there's something about just being able to rub your hand through the dirt and feel, you know, have a mosquito on your head and just, there's just something really natural about that. And so it took a while, but about four years ago now, I guess it is, a company called Bowhead, which is an incredible company, former professional snowboarder slash engineer, decides he's going to invent this bike to get him back on the mound. This bike, he puts an electric motor on it, and it has this whole articulating frame. The long story short to this, it allows a narrow wheelbase on three wheels to be able to get back doing all that single track stuff with about a 4,000 watt motor on it. So what that has allowed me to do is, I was telling you all earlier, I go ripping down this trail on Saturday and one of the good buddies of mine, we're, we're flying down this trail and all of a sudden this kicker comes up that I knew was going to throw me, but I didn't know how it was going to throw me. And all of a sudden, choof, right off of that 
ramp. And you got to understand when you're locked into those bikes, like when you jump on a regular bike, you can manipulate it a little bit. You can pull that wheel up. You can, you have a lot more control. When you, when you throw on these bikes, you're at the mercy of being locked into that bike. And before you know it, I'm like hurling through the air about a good 15 to 20 feet. And when I hit and landed, I'm telling you, I kind of gave a quick little prayer, but the idea of the fact that I made it, <laughs> it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I love how stinking hard you are at this. Like your brain is hard. You're like, well, what's the worst thing going to happen? <laughs> you know, yeah, like, you're like, like well, the worst thing already like, Come on, let's, yeah. let's huck. It's really amazing. I mean, honestly, and that is, a, I look at the same thing. I'm like, how, I mean, it could get worse, but I mean, you know what? No, we're going to push this hard. <laughs> Unlikely, right? Unlikely. How well did Indiana, because Indiana is a pretty extraordinary legacy of athleticism. You have incredible coaches there. How prepared for having an adaptive coach was IU? And how did that change the culture or, or expand the sort of athletic culture there at Indiana? And were you worried that you would still have a job? Yeah. So let me start with that one first. So that is, yeah, again, I think some of the, uh, I think some of the greatest things in my life, it's because I'm just completely oblivious to the surroundings. Sometimes I'm, I fell, broke my neck, can't move, but under, for whatever reason, I didn't think twice about, Oh, I'm coming back to be a coach. Like, of course the job is going to be there. Right. Like I'm just, I'm just oblivious to the reality of it. And my wife is completely opposite. My wife has a great awareness and, and she's definitely the, the person that, She's like, Tom, you, we got to think about this. Like, what does this look like? And so um, I'm in rehab and I, I'm only there for about two weeks. And I remember our athletic director, Fred Glass, after hours, everybody had gone home at that point. And he came in and he sat at the edge of the bed and he just said, he's like, you take as long as you need. Like, he's like, take as long as you need. Will you have a job when you come back? If it's not coaching, we'll figure out what it is. And he assured me that that job, at least a job would be there for when I came back. And, you know, and, and the story is, Indiana is incredible, but it's only the people that make up Indiana. And, you know, Fred is that person, you know, Fred gave me his own personal days. Like, so his, his sick days and stuff, he was able to transfer on the, on the me so that I was able to stay in rehab. I mean, I stayed in rehab for a year. I stayed away for a complete year and was able to survive and, and, and get paid for a lot of that. So it is within those people that make it up. I mean, and I had a great team around me. But to go back to your point on, or the question on how well were they prepared? Well, they really weren't. And it was really, no, we didn't know what we were doing. And so I just had a lot of really, really great people that asked a lot of questions. We're very empathetic to, hey, do we need to put electric doors here? Do we, are the bathrooms all right? They just asked a ton of questions. And by those questions, it only made me kind of explore more and more. It was almost like a great thing because I didn't know what I was doing, nor did I know what I was even looking for. I didn't even know what was relatively hard. I thought I'd be able to scoot across the football field, no problem. Trying to get across the football field with wheels now, it's like quicksand. So it was a process for all of us. And they were just very gracious in the fact of whatever I asked for, they came through and, and took care of it. That's so cool. Okay, so let's go back. And by the way, thank you for sharing all that story. It's amazing. And Kelly and I, every time we talk to you, we're totally inspired. So thank you. I appreciate that. And what I want to go back to is this transition of high school athletes to becoming college athletes, which is something Kelly and I are so interested in. And, and, and let me tee this up. Yeah. Uh, your current strength and conditioning coach, Aaron Wellman, I knew Coach Wellman 
when he was at Michigan and he had a couple other lives in the NFL and some other things, but a long time ago, I met him in Michigan. Maybe this is 2013 actually. And he had said, he's like, he'd come to our course and he said, Kelly, you know, one of the problems I have here is that 22 out of like my 24 all Americans have knee pain, just doing an air squat. And he literally was like, the kids are coming from high school so underprepared and so beat up. And I'm left now to try to untangle that so that we can actually go and now become professional athletes. So I just want to frame that, that you all think critically about this and everyone, and we inherit a whole lot of interesting baggage of poorly prepared, poorly trained kids for the rigors of Division One sports. And just to tee a question up to that, what do you wish as strength and conditioning coaches at this amazing institution, high school youth and high school athletes yeah. were doing to prepare for the rigors of college level sports that they are not doing now? So what I noticed, especially in the world of, uh, well, well, in the world of soccer for me is this, is when I get an athlete into this facility that has an extensive training background, many times it's a straight up mobility impairment. I mean, I know I know you all speak a lot on mobility. I know that that part, it's unreal how the training of just being able to go through a good body weight range of motion, correct, you know, as far as being able to get the feet to lock into the ground, being able to have certain points of contact to just locking into the core, but being able to sit through a full range of motion and being taught how to go through a full range of motion before they're ever loaded up with a bunch of weight. I feel like right now, a lot of the coaches, especially in football, were always chasing some of those numbers like, oh, hey, John, he was able to squat 400 pounds and he you know, he's able to do this and that. And I know for Aaron, we have young man that's in here now, supposedly it was like a 700 pound high school squatter. And then you watch him squat and you realize that range of motion is just kind of like this. <laughs> the hips are forward underneath them. There's And the kid always has knee pain. And there's just a lot of biomechanical challenges that have been loaded up with intensity to try and chase a number that could be up here on paper to make him more of a, a higher recruit. And I think that's one of the biggest detriments we're running into is trying to chase some of those numbers and sacrificing overall biomechanic movement to make sure that we have longevity in this field. Do you think that the message is out? I mean, we have two high school kids, and so we're privy to a lot of high school parents eating, training, lack of training, lack of eating, lack of sleep. You know, one of the things that we counsel a lot of kids on as they're thinking about playing college, we're like, you have to get in the weight room and you have to learn the language of strength and conditioning because you're going to be expected to be able to now play at a college level. You're playing with adults, who are four, maybe five years older than you are, and you're going to have to be in the weight room and manage that volume and intensity and learning, and you're going to have to be a freshman college student. It's a lot coming down the pipe. So how do we simplify that? Yeah, that's a wonderful, I mean, that for us, we're always looking at trying to, it's like almost like energy planning in a sense. We we have so many different things that they're going to have to do. So it's, it's coordinating yeah. that schedule. It's making sure that we're being proactive and not reactive to, hey, I went through a workout, but I totally forgot. Like I'm running late, got to get to class. So what ends up happening is, is they leave the workout. They don't have any food. They didn't prepare to make that transition over there. So all of a sudden, they're three hours post-exercise. They didn't have a single calorie in them to, to try and replenish them. And they've been sitting in class the entire time. And 
<laughs> it's the spiral effect because what happens if that happens on a Monday, well, they show up on Tuesday, they're definitely not any more recovered. And even at 18 to 20 some, which they do bounce back pretty quick, you still are starting negative. You're starting in a deficit. And so all of that does is just compound. You know, it's another big point that we're always trying to instill is the preparation part of it because you fall behind really quick. It happens in, in school too. It's like everybody starts off with 100 when you're in there with your grades. But the second you get one failing grade, all of a sudden, if if you fall behind on the readings or you fall behind on anything, it just keeps compounding on you. And then all of a sudden, you're at a really big detriment. You're trying to get back to it. For us, that's what we're always trying to do is make sure that we're preparing them. So they meet with the dietitians. They meet with our academic people to say, hey, you got this, this, and this prepare for the next step as we go. I think Aaron does a phenomenal job with it over at football because they have such a busy schedule, making sure that they know the idea of eating the right things, eating something, at least putting it in their body, making sure that they're getting home, playing video games because they're going to do it. But knowing that if you got a five thirty six o'clock run, you got to get a good seven hours in. And uh, it's a daunting task. And it's one that usually doesn't come together until maybe a sophomore or junior year for most but it's uh, as a freshman, you sit there and just keep trying to drill it into them to get into some kind of schedule. So Kelly and I chuckled a little bit because as you know, we just wrote this book called Built to Move, which is our way of trying to bring together all these habits that we think are connected and all of the habits that we learn by working you know, at your level of strength and conditioning and sport and being athletes ourselves and saying, hey, the things that athletes are supposed to be doing that are the real basics are actually the same thing that like regular humans are supposed to be doing, right? You just translate that, what you just said to like any weekend warrior athlete, right? Where they go smash themselves training for the triathlon in the morning and then they sit at their desk and they never ate any protein or a vegetable. And, you know, and then they stayed up late watching Netflix instead of like video games and only got six hours of sleep, right? So you just see that it's like the same challenges that real serious athletes are having are the same challenges that like everybody's having. And it turns out the response to those things is the same, which is the real basics, you know, get some protein and food on board, sleep, do some mobilizing, you know, take care of your range of motion, just some of this really do you, basic stuff. Do you stuff. think some of your kids are coming in? I mean, obviously there are kids who come out of systems and who are much more prepared, mm -hmm. but there are some kids we're finding, um, you were just talking to a coach friend of ours about a freshman who just went to the transfer portal, but that freshman's from New Zealand and didn't know how to shop, had never gone to the grocery store. And then got home and actually had to FaceTime her mother to figure out how to put the groceries away. So I'm like, wow, that person has really been failed by her coaches, didn't know how to eat, didn't know how to train, didn't know how to sleep. You know, they had to kind of teach this person everything. No, I got, I got a quick little story because you did, yes. So to your point, 100%. So we, we have a great women's basketball. I worked women's basketball year, for years, uh, made some really great relationships with a lot of the women. One such was went through our program, played pro for a while, but then was in this transition phase. So my wife and I said, come on, stay with us until you get your get life in order and you, you move on to the next thing. And so one day I come home and she's standing at my stove and um, she's, doing this. And I'm like, what are you doing? And she says, I'm making mac and cheese. And I'm looking at the stove going, there's no flame. Like you're, it's not even on. And she's like, I'm like, how long have you been doing that? And she says, I don't know, like 15, 20 minutes and it will not come together. It won't like the cheese won't come together with it. It won't. And I'm sitting there going, I'm like, do you know that you don't have the stove on? And she's like, what do you mean? And I'm looking, I'm like the stove, it's, you don't have the stove on. You got to turn the stove on to cook it. And I looked at that, which is, and she graduated, she was already graduated and, and post. 
my point being is, is that, yes, it's crazy because as freshmen, if they don't come in with the skills now, they come into an environment where we do a ton. Like they don't really have to cook. We have an entire dining services that's taking breakfast, lunch, and dinner all together for them. They have academic stuff that is completely laid out for them uh, as far as, hey, go to class, do your work, and it's all laid out and perfect. Even strength and conditioning, you come in and work. Like you come in, work, know what you're doing. But if you're not, everything is moving so fast that it's just more of athlete, participate, do well, keep moving forward. But all of the ideas of how to take care of yourself are kind of not instilled. And so what we're trying to do, we have a program here called Leadership and Life Skills, where we're trying to make them more proactive. Like, hey, not only just cooking 101 or any of these other things, the dietitians are doing it. We're looking at their strength and conditioning needs. Like, do you know why you're doing this? Like when you leave here, do you realize that if you take all of this exercise, and this you would think would be common sense, but it's not. But when you're doing all this exercise and then all of a sudden stop doing it, if you keep eating these high caloric, especially swimmers, and so, <laughs> if you keep doing this, you will grow. And that's one big part of just trying to educate them on the 101, like of, of what this environment that they're fortunate enough to be in is doing for them, but not. Like, I don't know if I want to be a starving 17 year old ever oh again. Just like training and like, I just, we could throw anything down. The fire was so hot, so hot. Oh my it incinerated pizzas. So one different angle on this, you know, these incoming athletes is obviously in sports like soccer and basketball and football, there is this huge tradition of strength and conditioning. And it seems like the challenge in those sports is exactly what you said, which is chasing these high numbers, but not, you know, looking at, you know, range of motion and mobility and all the sort of subcomponents of that. And then I feel like in my experience, there's this whole other swath of sports and my kids are in one of them, water polo, where there's no tradition of strength and conditioning at all. And it's not valued. That's not true. You see kids do planks all the time. Well, yeah, there's some planks and some like crappy push-ups and stuff, but there's no tradition of it. In fact, there's even sometimes a, you know, I've heard some coaches say, hey, you know, you don't like swimmers and water polo players don't need to do strength and conditioning because it's going to make them too bulky and muscular for the sport. And that also is kind of shocking. Strong kids are such bad. kind of shocking to me. So, so do you see that in sort of your non, like, well, I would say like revenue generating sports and your sort of other sports like swimming and water polo and a myriad of other ones, do you find kids have come in and like have never been in a weight room before? Yeah, a thousand percent. There's so many. And especially, um, I do have to say in the women's sports in particular, there it's a big deal of like, we don't uh, like volleyball. Volleyball is this huge, explosive, powerful sport. And the weight room is, it transfers over so well, but we have a lot of great athletes. We have a lot of great volleyball players that'll come in that have never really touched any kind of weight. Maybe they've done a little body weight stuff, but for the most part, it was all just about jumping and jumping and they stayed away from it. We do find that a lot of when they're coming in, but I do got to be honest with you. I, sometimes don't mind the person that is the blank slate, like never has touched a weight because you get to look at this person that biomechanically they move this certain way. They're this strong and it works out because you're just working with some of their fundamental functional movement patterns. And it's a lot easier to teach than to have to, than to go backtrack. To unteach. Yes. <laughs> We're going to take 300 pounds off the bar yeah, yeah, and yeah, start exactly. again. Yeah, that's exactly. really, that's difficult. I appreciate that. Well, and, and especially the psychological aspect too, because obviously these kids, if they make it to this level, have a lot of confidence in themselves that what they were doing, it got them to this level. So now you're going to sit there and go, hey, this wasn't the best way of getting, you know, you're, you're here and this is awesome, but 
let's try to go backwards and stop doing what you're doing to kind of do something else. It's a huge blow because they've been taught, yeah, put the weight on your back. You got to do these different things. You got to run a certain way. And the reteaching aspect is, is a little bit more challenging than the teaching aspect. Do you all have formal sports psych, high-performance psychologists as part of the high-performance team there? We do. Yeah, we have uh, we have a sports psychologist and then uh, we have another one, it, kind of like an assistant. But that has become a really uh, huge part of our program, a huge part. It was back in the day, it was the sports psychologist worked with maybe the divers. Maybe they worked with some different small groups, but not many people use that resource. And now it's become a huge, huge, huge aspect of the of the program. Some There's a lot of people, a lot of coaches here that would love to have their own sports psychologist just for their sport itself because they believe in in what it is from you know just visualization to actually being in there to to deal with adversities and different uh, parts of just becoming more resilient they spend a lot of time and they're extremely busy just working on that part of what sport is it made me think because i know that uh recently like cal just quadrupled the number of high performance psychologists they have to four (laughs) for 800 athletes, right? (laughs) And oftentimes as a parent, I know a little bit too much, right? For my daughters, you know, and I'm sure I overwhelm them all the time. But I'm all- No, you underwhelm them. That's your problem. (laughs) (laughs) I try not to be that dad. But, you know, I wonder where do we, and how do we begin sort of some of this formal psychology, formal mindset training, because I feel like it's really missing. And what we see is, Parents are terrible at dealing with it. At least you can pull kids away from their toxic parent environment pressures and they can be in the the bubble of IU. But we do see that kids don't know how to handle losses. I mean, I'm seeing, I, now there's something happening, I think, in sport where we are seeing that the very top of the game, so many of the best athletes in the world have the psychology and the pressure now is 10x than maybe it was when we were, you know, in the 90s. Do you think that's true? Yeah, I do. I, I think it is. I think right now our kids that are coming in, you know, for example, even even when you do so our sports psychologist is incredibly busy. Even in the fact of of them towards finals, like a final, like normal class stuff is going on, finals are around the corner, they will get booked nonstop because of the just that anxiety of going into taking a final. And then let alone if they would fail the test. Because then if they fail the test, it's two or three follow-ups on there. And the reality is, is you fail the test. You talk to the professor, you figure out what to do and retake the test or do something. And I'm not, and I'm not undermining the, the weight of failing a test, but the, a lot of these things we had, we were able to self-soothe. We were able to kind of figure it out. We were like, I just feel like we've come into a program now when there is a loss when they lose in a game of sport, when they lose in academics, or when coaches are playing them, it's almost 10x in the way it's being perceived. And I do think that those tools are really crucial in them understanding this is all part of life. This is life, and this isn't the end of it. Let's keep a good, the right perspective, and let's figure out how to coach up with some of those tools. Because I do think that there's a million theories of maybe why their approaches why athletes are the way they are now, but there is clearly a difference. And I'd say so all, a lot of our psychologists would agree with that in what our athletes are able to take care of themselves without having that outside help. So it's now the time to teach them that outside help of how to deal with it. So I know college athletes spin out of programs for a variety of reasons. And I mean, you already mentioned one of them, I think, is that you don't get playing time and there's a variety of other reasons. 
But do you see a common thread amongst the kids who come into a program and then just can't make it in a D1 athletic program? Is there some commonality? Is there something that they share that makes it more difficult for them to succeed in that kind of program? God, if we did know the answer, it'd be like the, it would be the greatest answer. (laughs) It'd be like recruiting gold, right? (laughs) Oh my God. It is. We have had kids that have come from poverty and they've been able to keep their grades up. They have that story. And then all of a sudden they get into our environment and they just, whatever reason, it just doesn't work out. Like it just go, they go away or you have the kid that the same story, but they're able to succeed. We've had the, the kid with the silver spoon in their mouth the entire time that just is the hardest worker and grinder you've ever met that goes on to play 15 years in the NFL. And then the complete opposite. It just doesn't seem like any given storyline backs up the exact outcome. There are some common themes of the fact of kids have, most kids that are able to keep moving forward have this mentality of, hey, when this happens, I'll figure this out and I'll just keep being able to move forward. And they also have a good support system around them too. I I do think that in athletics, we could create a good support system, but I think that that outside layer is so important as well because in here, we could hug them and do everything we can, but when they don't have that outside layer from parents to friends to people away from us, it really does make the entire system a little bit more detrimental to them having that long-term success. So you mentioned earlier that one of the things you're tasked with in your role is figuring out what the cutting edge of strength and conditioning is and making sure that you guys are, you know, focusing on the best and greatest practices and you're always learning and collaborating. So what are you seeing out there in the strength and conditioning world? Yeah, that's got you fired up that you're excited about. Yeah, it's an abundance of the fact of where technology is going and how we're able to... Uh, objectively measure what is going on with the body. There's so much subjectivity to the world of sport and the idea of strength and conditioning. We could see different variables that are happening, but to be able to objectively measure some of the stuff from even actively going live with heart rate monitors or having GPSs and and being able to create the the full picture of, of the athlete, that in itself is the thing that gets me fired up the profile. You know, if you think of it with our men's soccer team, uh, we have the sports science world over here and strength conditioning and then uh, sports med. And then you got uh, this this whole level of, uh, of, of actual soccer. Well, the idea is, is we are always able to gather all of this information and we're pulling and we're filling up these buckets of, of, of all of these numbers, but everybody's sitting there going, well, what the hell do we do with all of it? Like, how does it all talk to one another? How does it actually <laughs> right do i need an extra peanut butter and jelly sandwich with that like, yeah. what do i do <laughs> yeah dude like what besides some of the blatant stuff like a lot of it's all kind of intertwined and we, it's hard to make sense of it and so now we're able to take all of it dump it into a profile and now with the help of ai each chat gpt is unbelievable what it's able to produce as far as looking at some different coding deals which i'm not going to be able to tell you that i know how to do but uh, some of our sports scientists that I've talked to are able to take some of the different codes that comes from ChatGPT and then basically pull all of this information, drop it in there to tell us what and how ready an athlete is to move on to the next level. Hey, if this is going on, it gives us some parameters of there is a high chance that if this ankle pain, Johnny had this ankle pain back in the day of this, this, and this time. And then usually he also experienced knee pain later on. It gives us these different ideas of predictability that 
we've never had before. And it's all about taking all of these numbers, using an AI system to just literally pull some of that stuff out. That's extremely exciting to me because I think it's just like the entire world right now at AI. It's like the tip of the iceberg of what is going to actually reveal as far as capabilities. So, and we can move away from the subjective. Well, it looked yeah. like really intense lift. That has nothing to do with like, is this athlete ready to play? And what about stuff like Whoop and, you know, Kelly and I use an aura ring. I realize there's privacy issues there, right? Like, I don't know that you're allowed to Not actually... Not in college sports. You can just measure but, but, names. I mean, Those you know, kids are yours. Wouldn't it be interesting if you could just get like a daily report of like how much all your athletes were sleeping? And Oh, you wouldn't want to know that. I mean, I don't know if you'd want to know that. That may be a bit like your shoulder MRI that you might not want to know. But but yeah, I mean, is that something that you guys are looking at in terms of figuring out how you can track on, you know, actually use trackers in any kind of meaningful way in your program? It is. Yeah. And it's it's actually funny because when Whoop came out, everybody got excited. So we they gave us a bunch of them to try. And we have them on like a bunch of volleyball was one of the teams. And uh, you get these reports the next day. And all of a sudden you see like three, like three hours on there and only two and a half was actually any kind of sleep. And you're like, you literally slept three hours. Like, and so, uh, yeah, it is better to just not even know about it. In the MLS, it's huge right now as far as them being able to wear trackers, them being able to, to use any of the monitors that will monitor sleep and being able to drop it into a, a profile to be able to make up what this athlete is actually experiencing objectively. And uh, we don't have that we have that capability, but because of privacy, because of the rules, we had to stop doing it because when they wore that, they were basically saying that they were being held accountable to those hours and we were monitoring them. And a little background on NCAA, you know, we're only allowed in the off season to work with them eight hours a week. And so when we're only able to work with them eight hours a week, obviously if we're monitoring an entire sleep cycle, we're going to go over top of it. And that's the way they were seeing that same exact thing. So they made us stop doing that. But in a perfect world, if we could have that, it would be incredible. What we do now is we just ask for a basic, hey, how well did you sleep last night? A little questionnaire that would basically say, do you feel rested? Do you, how many hours, when did you go to bed? You know, And they could fill it out or they don't have to fill it out. But that little bit, at least it gets thrown in there to tell us a little bit about the predictability of where they're at. And it's tricky to try to run that balance of, hey, you're a 18 to 22-year-old college student who needs to be a college student and actually a person. And by the way, you're also a semi-pro athlete. I mean, you are a professional athlete at Indiana. So it is interesting to see where you're going to push and pull. It's, I don't think I have an answer, but I talked to a lot of coaches about it. Like, you just, How do you get the kids to recognize that they feel better, perform better, all aspects of their life better when they do the basics? And they lack that perspective right then and there. I mean, back when I was in grad school, Five hours of sleep. I was convinced. I'm like, there's only, I'm one of those guys. I know there's not many, but I could get five <laughs> hours of sleep and I can perform. And it wasn't until later on that I realized when I start getting seven, eight, nine hours of sleep, you feel like a million bucks. Like, yeah, you could work off of five, but you are far from that person. But you just <laughs> lack that perspective at that point. And so it's tough to convince them otherwise. And from, you know, the joys of college and, and what life brings you, well, being here to video games, all the things that are kind of distracting you from committing to uh, going in and, and actually uh, you know, getting good night's sleeps. 
they're powerful. I mean, they're powerful and they, you just don't get that buy-in right off the bat. So what I will tell you though, is after, if you could just get them to see it for four or five weeks, which is a long time, if you get them to see something for four or five weeks, both in running, both in recovery, both like cold baths, they hate cold baths, but get them in a cold bath a couple times a week for an f- extended period of time. And they'll talk about what, how they feel. You could get buy-in pretty quick, even a lot quicker than our normal population, but they just got to see results and they're not very patient. So you got to keep instilling it in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, that's exactly right. And we see now is the, the power of seniors, power of senior captains, senior leadership who's saying, uh-uh, this is what we do as this team and this is what works. And if you want to play with the big dogs, you better start doing you know, those not, things. Be, not being a 17, 18-year-old freshman. Yeah. Like you can't, that's not going to hang. So we've gone way over time, but Kelly and I were talking as we were getting ready for this podcast about one question we wanted to ask, and that is, what have you seen with this new name image likeness rule with athletes? Is it something that even trickles down into your experience in the weight room? Mm. What's that like on the sort of coach end of of the spectrum? You know, for us, it hasn't it hasn't touched us a lot. You know, obviously we get to see a lot of, we hear a lot about, you know, our basketball guys and some of our football guys and now our women's basketball, you know, getting these pretty big deals. I mean, heck, going from nothing to getting even $50,000, well, not even, but like $50,000. Oh my 000. gosh. That's you're, major. As a college student, you're oh my rich. God, yeah. You're rich, like $50,000 or the fact that they can go down to our local fine restaurant and then they could just, there's no rules that are going on. You know, it, it's such an interesting world right now. And, and people say it's like the wild, wild west. There's just a lack of rules. And I'd say there's this uncertainty and this like little bit of like, oh my, is that really happening? But on the other end, I'm kind of like, you know what? This is kind of cool to start exploring this side of things because I do think our student athletes, they give us a lot. They built these walls off of their play. They should have these rights to make money off of what they're doing. I just think... Uh, right now, maybe we got to dial it in a little bit with certain things because it's they just pulled the the rules out and they, they threw them out the window. And so but, yeah, it's it is interesting when you have an athlete that's coming in and has been offered a million dollars to stay for an extra, you know, stay for an extra year, which we, we have that within some of our basketball players. So it's kind of an interesting world when they're making a million bucks and they're making more money than some of those coaches and stuff. So pretty cool, but unnerving times. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. How beautiful is it in Bloomington right now? Because I, I tried to describe to the, the ladies, I was like, oh, yeah, it's like Hogwarts. Is that about right right now? Yeah, I think you nailed it. I mean, it's like it's just 82 to 85 degrees. The humidity is not in here yet. Everything is green. I mean, and it's it's just this world of in a, in a college town. It's the greatest thing because it's just crazy. You know, 60, 70,000 students and you sit here as a local and you want to pull your hair out. And just at the point when you just can't take it anymore, they all just go away. <laughs> We're at this point right now where they're they're all gone and uh, it's quiet. You can park anywhere you want. You can get into any restaurant and it's just beautiful. And at a point, we'll get bored and you'll wait for them to come back. And then uh, come August, September, they come back and the energy is high and you're up and rolling again. And so it's pretty special. I love that. Well, Tom, thank you so much for being with us. It was so fun. And where, if anyone wants to follow you, find you, learn more about you, where can they do that? Any social media. Uh, I'm on all the platforms at Morris Strength. And then uh, Tom Morris Performance is my website. And so, yeah, any love to interact with anybody. So by all means, DM or, or any way, contact me because 
I love talking shop and uh, definitely talking about performance. Well, Tom, you um, hopefully, you know, we have uh, you have an incredible water polo coach who was a Cal graduate where Juliet went to school. And she now has had this program long enough to start to be able to have own all the recruiting. You guys are having incredible success with the max number of wins, like it just the number of scholar athletes. I'm hoping that maybe Caroline can play there someday. So I'm um, planting those seeds. You could train a kid who can already overhead squat and snatch. <laughs> right. Come in there and I'll be, it would be unbelievable. So let's, let's, let's get her here. Let's get her here. Thank you so all much, right, my friend. Again, Great to Tom. see you. You bet. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Ready State Podcast. If you like what you're hearing, check out all our episodes here or at thereadystate.com. And be sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes to help others find our show. Check us out and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Ready State. Until next time, cheers, everyone. You got it. You better stop it.